This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. And I don't know about you, but sometimes we romanticize this picture of Christ calling His disciples. Uh, we hear these stories about Jesus walking along the lake shore and finding uh, Peter and James and John and their boats. And and he says, come follow me. And there's this kind of swell of music and they leave everything. They drop it where it, where it is and follow after him, skipping off into the horizon. Um, <laughs> whatever picture you have in your head. I invite you to look at this in a little different way. Put yourself in the story. Here it is. You're at work. You're at your desk doing the thing that you get paid to do. Maybe you had a bad week. Maybe uh, you had to file some extra TPS reports. I don't know. Whatever the case was, there you are sitting at your desk and someone walks through your office, knocks on your door without so much as a visitor badge on. And they look at you and say, hey, are you busy? right in the middle of the day. Maybe you got a meeting in 10 minutes. They say, hey, um, could you follow me for a second? I mean, maybe not a second. Just, you know, follow me. Are you going to get up off your desk? Are you going to stop what you're doing and and follow this person, this random person who didn't even stop by the, uh, the, the to check in at the front desk? Well, maybe it was a little different than that. But however it was, Jesus walks up to them, whether he was already a little bit of a known quantity or not. Jesus walks up to them where they work and says, oh, by the way, what you're doing, uh, it's well and good, but why don't you drop what you're doing and come follow me instead? Now, we can romanticize it all we want. Obviously, there was something compelling about this invitation because the disciples did it. But we have a picture later in uh, in the Gospels as well of Jesus continuing this invitation. Uh, he says, "Come follow me." And someone says, "Well, let me let me go bury my parents first. And Jesus says, "Let the bur- the dead bury the dead. You come follow me." We don't see that that person did or didn't. With a rich young ruler, we know this story. Uh, he he says, "Teacher, what must I do to be saved?" And he says, um, "Well." keep the commandments. And he says, I've done all of this from my youth. He says, well, he he gets this glint in his eye and he says, well, do one, one thing you lack, go sell all you have and come follow me. And we look at this and we say, oh, well, look at him that, that he, he was so attached to his wealth, right? He didn't, he didn't do it. But it says here in, in the gospel of Mark specifically, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said, go sell all you have and come follow me. He's extending to him the same invitation he made to the disciples. And so here is this person looking in the midst of his life and saying, "Um, gosh, I just, I can't let go of all of these things, right? This is not Jesus trying to trap someone. This is Jesus offering to this person the same things he offered to all of the other disciples, to the other apostles. Leave what you have and come follow me. Sometimes the things that Christ calls us to leave behind are the things that we find security in, whether it be uh, 
a, a job like it was for me when I was coming into the Catholic Church. Uh, maybe it's some uh, some relationship that you have that God is saying, you can't trust in this more than you trust in me. Come, follow me. Follow me into difficulty. Follow me into uncertainty. Follow me wherever I happen to go this day. And this is very much like what God did for the children of Israel back when they were following the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire through the wilderness for those 40 years. God is saying, come learn to know who I am and trust me and know that I will be with you. Come, follow me. Uh, the, to, this fulfills that promise that, that, fo- that we see all throughout Scripture, that they will be my people and I will be their God and I will dwell among them. Here it is, God coming and saying, you, right where you are, in your place of work, in your place of comfort, in your place of security, in your place of maybe dominion, I understand the world in this place. And he turns and he says, hmm, come follow me. So we talk about on this show uh, every, every week in some capacity what it means for us to say, I believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, all that stuff. I believe it. Okay, that's great. We say it in Mass. We profess it. But do we believe it? What are the implications of those beliefs, and do we live it out? Do we live out the repercussions of our belief? As Christ looks at us and says, you, right where you are, there, sitting in your seat, listening to this show, you, come follow me. Leave behind the things that you find security in and comfort in, if they are not me, and come follow me into the unknown into a place of radical trust, radical obedience. And in this place, come and find your fulfillment. This is the truth. Peter would never be fulfilled fully and completely as a fisherman. It was work to do. It was dignified work, um, as all work is dignified. Uh, It was honest work. He was made for something more. Matthew, there at the tax booth. It was work that was not appreciated. It was work that would easily lend itself to corruption. And Jesus said, come, follow me. Leave that behind. Come into a new paradigm. So uh, what if Jesus were to walk into your workplace today and say, you, come follow me? What would be the thing that he would ask you to leave behind? What are the things that you find comfort and security in that aren't him? If you're comfortable sharing it, come over to social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. And I'd love to hear, if you're willing to share, what are the things that Christ might call you to leave behind to follow him day after day outside the walls? I found for me, a lot of the things that I was called to leave behind were my preconceptions about what it meant to follow God. See, I grew up in a a religious household. Uh, I grew up wanting to live a holy life, failing at it miserably time after time, certainly, but wanting to live a holy life. And when God finally rolled up to my place and looked me in the eyes and said, come follow me, 
he had some specific things he wanted me to leave behind. And a lot of them were my preconceptions of what it meant to follow Christ. I think that he's does, he, he will do that for all of us, because all of us have some kind of a misconception about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a missionary disciple, and what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. That we are not living for ourselves. Uh, we're living for Christ and as part of his whole body. This means laying down some things, some preconceptions of our own, and listening carefully for the voice of God, following him where he goes, which may move from day to day as he wants to draw us into new realities and deeper understandings of his grace. And let's remember that the only difference, really, between the the apostles and this rich young man was the apostles' willingness to follow Christ wherever he would lead and to let go of the things that had brought them security and comfort before. They left everything to follow him. Let us have the courage and may God give us the grace to do the same. We're talking today a little bit about this with Paul Fahey. He's one of the four co-founders of wherepeteris.com, which is a fantastic blog and website that that wrestles with all of the belief of the church, with all the things going on around the world, doing so in docility to the magisterium of the church. And at the end of the day, that unity is what matters. This uh, comes from a quote, where Peter is, there is the church. Where the church is, there is Jesus Christ. Where Jesus Christ is, there is eternal salvation. And that's... um, Oh, Paul, tell me who it is. Uh, I think it's St. Ambrose of Milan. Uh, well, we'll just go with that. You're putting me on the spot here. One of the early fathers uh, in his writings said, hey, listen to your bishops. Listen to the Pope. Where Peter is, there is the church. Um, and so we want to make sure that even if we don't understand what the Pope is saying, even if we can't quite wrap our minds around uh, the magisterium of the church— We know that that's where the church is. Where Peter is, there is the church. We want to do everything that we can to find ourselves in line and in unity with the whole church. So um, with that in mind, for me as as a Protestant who became Catholic, this is something that's very important for me because I was always looking for the culture war. I mean, I was always on my guard against bad doctrine when I was in the Protestant church. Um, And over time, I became convinced uh, that the Catholic Church is where I needed to be. And that was not a decision I came by lightly. And so when I came into the church, I said those words at, at my profession of faith, um, at my confirmation. I believe and profess all that the Holy Catholic teaches, uh, proclaims, and believes to be revealed by God. Well, here's the thing. One of the things that she teaches, proclaims, and believes to be revealed by God is that the, the Pope, when speaking in his office, speaks infallibly. And I can trust that the Pope is never going to teach something to be believed by the whole church in error. And so there's some security in that, that um, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to really be on my guard against heresy coming from the highest seat, not because he's perfect or because he's impeccable or because he's just a great guy, but because the Holy Spirit preserves his church. Um, and so that's that's an 
I've watched a lot of other people who were converts never leave the culture wars behind them. They've, they stayed on their guard, and when something didn't feel right, they picked up the arms again and just went right back into battle. Um, but the church calls us to a spirit of docility. That doesn't mean that we think things through un- uncritically and just receive everything without thinking about it. Um, I actually think that it takes more effort to profess and believe all that the church teaches, because it's not just about professing, it's also about believing. So we have to wrestle with something until we can get to the place where we not only profess what the church says, but we also believe what the church says. So we're going to break this down a little bit, specifically with regard to uh, the Good Friday homily by Cardinal Cantalamesa, who is the preacher of the papal household, has been for three or four popes now. Uh, And Paul, you recently wrote a piece that can be found in the Catholic Herald, catholicherald.co.uk, on, hey, Father Canalamesa isn't just talking to these people that were there. Father Canalamesa, oh, sorry, not Father anymore, Cardinal Canalamesa is talking to you. So, Paul, thanks for being on the show with us today. Hey, thank you so much. So let's talk about this because um, what he was specifically referencing is our tendency toward factionism, uh, which we see here in the United States, uh, that we adopt and superimpose over our position and place in the church. And so he's calling us out of factionism. Tell me a little bit about what you saw in that homily and why you were uh, it, impelled to write this piece. Yeah, so what... Oh, oh, say anything new. I, I think I said in my article, um, uh, he's, he's making a very obvious assessment of... Christians in the church in this moment. And he's not the first one to make this assessment. Um, When I first read the USCCB has their forming consciences for faithful citizenship document that they update every, every several years. I first read it probably in, I think around 2014, maybe somewhere around there. And they have a line in there where it says uh, it's talking about the goodness of the political vocation. I mean, especially as lay people, it's our job to help sanctify all aspects of the world, including politics. And the, and the Catholic Church doesn't have a negative view of politics. It's a very positive view of politics, right? Um, but it says that we must bring our values and have our values transform the political parties we belong to and not let and be on guard for the party's values compromising ours, mm-hmm. right? And that... of. It's a it's a really great document, but that line always stood out to me. Um, and then, just a couple months ago, for a different article I was writing, I was rereading uh, Cardinal Ratzinger's famous um, the homily he gave right before he was elected pope, where he talked about the the dictatorship of relativism, mm-hmm. and the way he described this dictatorship of of relativism was it's being swept up, allowing yourself to be swept up by the ideologies of the age instead of staying, staying rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That's what Cantal Mesa is saying here. He's saying, when we allow our political ideologies, whatever they may be, and mm-hmm. he didn't point fingers left, right, center, it doesn't matter. When we allow our political ideologies to take precedent over the gospel of Jesus Christ and the teachings of the church, um, we become divisive. We create factions. We break apart from the church. Um, I mean, he, he, the language he used was like, 
we tear Christ's tunic to shreds, yeah. you know? Um, but the way he summed it up, he said, the kingdom of the world becomes more important in a person's heart than the kingdom of God. Right. That's what this is. I've been going through the minor prophets recently. Um, and there's a line in the minor prophets in Obadiah that's called out again in the book of revelation. And it says this, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. Right. We, we, we know that because we listen to the Handel's Messiah every year. Um, and so it was said a little bit differently in Obadiah, but that's basically the the, the reference there. Um, it's that's how it's said in the Book of Revelation. I think far too often we get that in reverse, and we take the the province and the kingdom that belongs to God, uh, the kingdoms of our God, and we turn it into and turn it over to the kingdoms of this world, and that can be a, a really subtle thing that we think that we're joining the two together but we have allowed the wrong one, the, the, um, the, the sovereignty there. Uh, you brought up that Father Candela Mesa didn't point fingers left, right, center, or anything, and, and I want to call this out because I, this, I think, gets missed so often as we look to the Vatican and read the documents that the Vatican releases and the homilies that are done there. The reason that they're not pointing out political factions left, right, center is because those are not universal from one country to another. And our faith is universal from one country to another. And so while, um, while it might be speaking and convicting you in a certain way, that doesn't mean that they're pointing fingers at you. That means the Holy Spirit is taking that phrase, and he's pointing at you. Yes. And, I mean, so for me, I mean, uh, again, this is the vocation of lay people. We take the general and we apply it specifically to our own communities and in our own consciences, right? In my own community, and I mean that both locally and, and in the United States, the U.S. Catholic Church, um, well, well, Cardinal Cantalamesa didn't point fingers at left or right. Um, I, I saw myself, um, I mean, years ago, I would have described myself as a right-wing culture warrior Catholic, right? Mm -hmm. um, those are my people. Those are my roots. Um, and I saw him talking to them. Yeah. Uh, I saw him talking about the, the many priests and the bishops who supported those priests um, over this past election cycle who said that uh, you can't be, a, you can't vote for a Democrat and be a Catholic, period. You know, contradicting the very beautiful and very nuanced teaching that comes from our bishops mm -hmm. uh, and just making these blanket statements. Yes, Catholics on the left do it too, but I, I see it more present in um, from those on the conservative end, but well, then I but then but then I pause too because right. because Consul Mesa is like he's not saying point fingers at everybody else, he's saying no everyone needs to examine their conscience right. So then I'm forced to receive his homily and be okay. I I hope I'm not putting ideology above faith. I would say one of the one of the things about that is you might see it more pronounced in in the place where you were uh, previously because of the current scenario that we find ourselves in, right? Yeah. Um, when I first came into the church, Pope Benedict was the Pope, and the dissent that we saw was against uh, the the more things that are, are associated with conservatism. So yep. the, the, the dissent was for people dissenting against that. Now we're seeing dissent on the other side, and we have to recognize that dissent is dissent. 
And um, yeah. I go back to paragraph 87 of the Catechism all the time. It's kind of my, my gold standard that, um, that hearing Christ's words, he who hears you hears me, the faithful, that's you and me, receive with docility the things that their pastors teach them in various forms. Yeah, we've had a, um, I, I didn't write any of these, but um, a series of contributors for, for where Peter is. I think just we've read three articles in the past couple of weeks. One was started by talking about how seeing, it was making an argument that the dissent on the right is, is worse because it presents itself as orthodox. Mm. And then we had someone give a counterpoint of view. No, their experience, it was the dissent on the left that was actually more toxic for them. And then we had a third contributor give a point of view that said, you know what, really, it's whatever dissent that I'm most tempted to, that's the one I should be most concerned about, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and, I mean, there were things in all three of them that, you know, I was nodding along with. That's absolutely right. But at the end of the day, and Cantal Mesa points this out, you know, we need to examine our consciences for where we put ideology above the gospel and the church's teaching. Now, here's the thing about examining our consciences, and I've talked about this several times on the show before. I'm just going to bring it up again here in case you missed those episodes. When we form our consciences, it's not just sitting and thinking and and saying, well, what did I do? Um, I find when I go and I grab an examination of conscience that I haven't seen before, uh, that someone else made, that I'm not just sitting with my own thoughts and rolling through what are the thing what are the things I did wrong that's how we end up in the confessional saying the same things over and over again it's when we get a really well thought out examination of conscience and we read through that in that spirit of prayer that we give the holy spirit permission to say oh yeah over here this thing that you never think about yeah that's the thing i want to deal with right now um and so part of forming our conscience is exposing ourselves to the voices of other people who we don't normally listen to. Specifically in this, uh, I go back often to this this scripture that says, um, they reject, Paul's talking to Timothy. He says they reject, there will come a time when people will reject sound doctrine. They'll gather around themselves teachers who tell them what their itching ears want to hear. <laughs> and, and that's where we find ourselves on the left, on the right, on the center, and where you find yourself sitting here listening to this is we have a tendency to seek comfort and security and stability and predictability. And we're going to do that by finding people who tell us things that make us feel safe and secure and comfortable. And so it becomes our job to go out and listen and find those people who say things that make us uncomfortable and then examine that in the light of Christ to see if it's true and if it applies to us. Yeah, I, I think being a Christian means being uncomfortable. Um, I, I recall, and I forget where, I believe it was Pope Francis talking about how the church's doctrine develops. And it develops in tension. And we see this at the early church. There's tension, there's some big heresy, there's questions that are being really wrestled over. So then the church wrestles with it together and then the church comes out and says, this is the truth. This is the line in the sand, right? Mm -hmm. um, doctrine develops through tension. But I think our conscience develops and forms through tension as well. Um, if we are never uncomfortable, then we're not really growing. We don't, if we're not wrestling. Um, so I teach RCIA as, as a part of my job as catechist at a parish. And uh, I, I tell people who are preparing to enter the church, I'm like, hey, we have several months. I'm not going to teach you everything the church teaches because <laughs> that's going to take a lifetime. It's going to take more than a few months. Um, I'm going to teach you the important things. 
But what I hope to do is instill a trust. Um, I want to answer the toughest questions you have so that, you know, you can say honestly without your fingers crossed, right? The profession that you made, you believe everything the church teaches, yes. But also that there's a trust instilled that when questions will arise, because they will arise after you're baptized, after you're confirmed, things that you don't like, things that rub you the wrong way, things that make you uncomfortable or things you just flat out disagree with, that your impulse won't be to dismiss it, but to say, you know what? The church has had good answers before and I'm willing to enter into that tension and listen. Mm-hmm. The, w- the word you said was docility. That, yeah, that, that doesn't mean, you know, blindly following, but it means trusting and letting the Holy Spirit speak through the church and bring us into that place of tension. Otherwise we don't grow. You know, you, you- you're talking about growth happening in tension, but there's more than just that. I mean, yeah, we need to listen. We need to be uncomfortable. We need to wrestle with things for us to be able to move forward. But we also have this, this um, thing that when we grow, the things that we clothe ourselves no longer fit. I've got kids. You've got kids. You know that there's a whole stack. And we have so many, like we just, when a kid outgrows something, we put it in the bag. Uh, because the next one's coming up, right? So we're going to store that. We're going to save it for later. But that also means that our kids will sometimes find that bag and say, oh, this is my favorite shirt. I'm going to put it on, even though it's like five sizes too small. Um, we, t- we try to do that all the time with our with our belief and with our practice, that we say, I'm going to find this thing that that no longer fits me and see if I can still put it on. Well, if you're still fitting into your understanding of the faith that you've had for 10, 15, 20 years, you have to ask if you're growing, right? That doesn't mean that we throw away old practices, but they develop and they deepen and they grow richer and they grow larger to the place where we have to expand ourselves in order to really uh, put on the faith in its fullness, the, the image that the church uses, and this may, this may be um, uh, St. Henry Newman, of a tree, right? We have the deposit of faith, mm-hmm. which is scripture, which is Jesus Christ, which is the lived teaching of the apostles. And that doesn't change. Right. But the Holy Spirit uses the church to unpack that and unfold it. And it grows into a sapling and it grows into a great tree. Um, and that's the beauty of having a living magisterium mm-hmm. is the church is constantly calling us to something greater. Every week the Pope comes out with a new teaching, right? right. Um, we're, we're always being called to growth. There's no stagnation in a living church. Peter Kreeft in his book, Catholic Christianity, um, which is a, a, an ex, expounding on the catechism. He references that from uh, St. John Henry Newman. And he says that when the church develops in its doctrine, it grows organically like a tree develops fruit, not like a construction crew adds another story to a house. And so there is this organic nature to the way the church develops. We're going to talk about that a little bit more right after this break. We're talking today with Paul Fahey. He's one of the four co-founders of wherepeteris.com. Fantastic blog. Go take a look at all they have to say. We're talking today about our role in preserving and promoting unity in the church and living out a life of holiness and docility to the magisterium of the church. There's much more to come right after this, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief in our daily life. I'm your host, TL. And we're getting into all kinds of trouble today as we're talking with Paul Fay, uh, co-founder, one of the co-founders of Where Peter Is, wherepeteris.com. Uh, he also periodically writes for Catholic Herald, catholicherald.co.uk. We've been talking about um, how we are required to grow and to be humble and to be docile and to avoid uh, schism, for lack of a better word. It's an uncomfortable word, specifically as we, um, as we apply it to ourselves. Am I in union with God's church? That's an uncomfortable question to ask specific. I mean, the, obviously we could say, oh, of course I am. I go to mass every week. I listen to the readings. I, I believe what the church says, as long as it's uh, from these documents, right? Uh, well, what about the rest of them? The church is a, uh, a beautiful and complex and nuanced organism that we are invited to be a part of. And if we think we've got our finger on exactly what the church teaches, uh, I, got a, I got some hard news for you. Uh, the church is going to challenge you in one way or the other. And in fact, all of the great heresies of the, the, the church, that the church has had councils to refute and have laid down, and we've gotten our doctrine because the church wrestled with these difficult things. Every single one of these heresies came because someone tried to standardize or make easy some, uh, some paradox of faith, of God's justice and his mercy, of, uh, of God's uh, presence and his imminence and his transcendence. And if we try to go to one side or the other of these paradoxes, we end up losing everything. And so the church asks us to be both and. Yeah, and, and the church, uh, was so we've been talking about growth, um, something we've, we at Where Peter Is have been talking about a lot with Pope Francis because so much of our peers and the people and the people above us who we looked up to so much under John Paul II and Pope Benedict have um, seemed to have a real problem with Francis. And that's, I mean, I, there's there's been a lot of hurt there. So we've yeah. talked about this phenomenon a lot. And if you look at heresies in the church, there tends to be, there's the groups who run ahead of the magisterium's development, right? And say the church should be teaching this, right? Yeah. But, but most often uh, the heresies come from the groups in the church, the people in the church who are like, who don't want change. Yeah. This is how things have always been, even though they probably haven't always been that way. Yeah. And the church is moving forward and they refuse to move. Right? Uh, I had this conversation some time ago with Jen Fitz. Um, about different communication styles that Pope Francis uh, is, for for all that he is, is Argentinian, right? He's he's going to speak in that way. And that culture is a very um, high-context culture. They expect that you're going to understand the context that they're speaking. Uh, and And so it's not really specified in the way that we had with our German Pope and our Polish Pope, who laid it out as if you don't understand anything they're saying. They're going to be very explicit about it. Um, here is where I see the most uh, opportunity for, for stress, for, um, for fear, and for tearing at the at Christ robe, at the potential of schism, is when we listen to people's analysis of the Pope's. 
when we don't go and engage with the documents ourselves. Um, when someone tells us, oh, well, this is what Pope Francis really means, well, that's their interpretation and that's their hermeneutic of the situation. That's how they read that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what he's saying, and it's incumbent upon us to go and to listen to what the Pope is saying. So here's an example for you of that. Um, uh, I didn't really pay much attention to popes for a long time uh, until it wasn't until after college. Um, after college, I worked for a couple of years at Kelvin College in Grand Rapids in the bookstore, which was a wonderful place to work. And I was kind of the, the token Catholic there. So that was during the time when Pope Benedict retired and Francis was elected. So I had the webcam up and on my work computer with, uh, with a smokestack, you know, the live stream going. Um, so Francis was exciting, uh, but I didn't really care. I wasn't online enough to, to, in the Catholic world to care much about all the controversies and stuff. And, but then there was the year of mercy. And then the Pope spoke the name of God is mercy, which profoundly changed my own faith. And then I had the opportunity to go in and see the Pope at the World Meeting of Families when he was in Philadelphia. Yeah. So around that time, I started caring what people were saying about Pope Francis. And there was all this animosity towards him about Amoris Laetitia. And like him, he's changing church teaching in Amoris Laetitia. And, um, it was during the fall, maybe September, that was when the there was a big letter that all these Catholic academics signed accusing the Pope of heresy. And I'm like, okay. I'm not paying attention to this, but that goes too far. You can't say the Pope's a heretic, right? Um, so I, I posted on my Facebook, essentially, you can't say the Pope's a heretic. And there was a priest who was a canon lawyer, so much more educated than I am, who said, you don't know what you're talking about here. And I'm like, you're right. I don't. I haven't read the stuff. So then I sat down and I read Amor Satizia. Mm-hmm. And Which is a big book. Let's just... It's... it's, it's it's a big book, um, and but it's phenomenal. Paul the Sixth, he ain't. No, <laughs> no. Um, I have very few complaints of Pope Francis. One of them is that he could he could use fewer words. That would be nice. Um, <laughs> Can I but, recommend an editor to you, Pope Francis? <laughs> <laughs> but but I read it. Now I, I'm a catechist. I love the catechism. I mm-hmm. I love the catechism. I'm not going to say more than scripture. I can't say more than scripture, but it's it's a close second there. Okay, I love it. So I brought the context of the catechism into Amoris Laetitia, into chapter eight, into the heart of where this controversy was. And I walked away being like, what's the problem? Right. I didn't see it. And I'm like, maybe I'm missing something. And, and that really started, it was only a few months after that where I got connected with people online and we, we started where Peter is, but it was going right to the document. Presuming the context of the catechism, presuming that, presuming that the Pope isn't a heretic. Right. Well, and um, it's incumbent upon us uh, in, and this is long time church teaching, right? One of, and this is in the catechism as well. Uh, one of the demands of charity is that we, if there's two ways that a thing can be interpreted, whoever it is that says it, whether it's our neighbor or our, uh, or annoying sibling or the Pope, if there's two ways a thing can be interpreted, it's incumbent upon us to choose to interpret it in the most charitable way. Yeah. And and coming from the Pope, a, from a teaching document, right, which mm-hmm. isn't infallible, but at the same time, um, the Second Vatican Council says it's a part of his ordinary magisterium, which demands religious assent, right? Yeah. 
So you read it with that docility. And like you, you should, as a Catholic, we shouldn't even read it with suspicion. We should read it with readiness to accept, you know, that's, that's more than just neutral. <laughs> we reading it with a readiness to accept. And when I did that with the catechism, you go to what the Pope actually says. Um, yeah, he's, he's changing some things, some practices from how previous popes did things. And his style is different and he's emphasizing different things, but he's the Pope and he can do that. And that's how the magisterium works. You know, he's not changing doctrine. He's not throwing away centuries of tradition the way you would think he would be with, with the type of criticism that he gets. And, um, but, but it's incumbent upon us to, to actually read the texts themselves yeah, and to read them with, um, a spirit of acceptance. Well, so I have to tell you, I love the documents of the church. Um, uh, the, and, and they are so terribly challenging and difficult to accept. Uh, whether we're talking about Humana Vitae or we're talking about Rerum Novarum or we're talking about Deus Caritas Est or we're talking about one of the, the letters of Pope Francis. All of them... Uh, have something to teach us. All of them have something that will challenge us if we're really paying attention and using these documents. The, the Even if we go to the USCCB, the, the Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship, if we read that document and not some uh, three-page pamphlet about it, but actually read the multi, what, 30, 40-page document, um, it has something that's going to comfort us and something that's going to profoundly challenge us. And that's the way that we form our conscience. That's the way we grow in our faith. And that's the way we pursue holiness as members of the body of Christ, members of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Absolutely. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of one holy Catholic apostolic church, uh, sometimes we misunderstand uh, what that means. The, the, The presence of the church as the institution that Christ founded, and the institutions that the church inhabit. Uh, And we're going to talk about this in our Patreon segment specifically, but there's this phrase uh, from a homily, or from a radio address, I think, given by uh, then uh, Father Ratzinger, that's been compiled into a book called Faith in the Future. Uh, It's available on Ignatius Press. It's available in the Verbum app as well. Uh, And at the very end of this, you've you've heard this, you've seen it quoted. It talks about the church of the future will be a purer church, a church of fewer institutions. Um, we have to remember that the church of the future, that the title of that chapter is the church of the year 2000. So we are 21 years past that, and we're living in the fruition of it. Uh, in the last uh, two minutes here, give me your thoughts on it, and then we'll de- delve deeper into this in our Patreon segment. Yeah, so I first became uh, aware of that passage when I was in college. And back then, my first thought was, yeah, of course we need a smaller and purer church. We got to get rid of all of those other people. You know? <laughs> and no point did I think, oh, maybe maybe I wouldn't be in the elect, you know. Um, but as I've come back to years later, looking back on uh, the, this radio address, it's incredibly prophetic. Because it's not about us versus them. What what Ratzinger was saying was, listen, the modern world is going to strip away these privileges that the church has had for a long time that have made us too comfortable. Yeah. And the, and what's going to keep the church going? But real holiness, us being saints, 
And that's the point that he was trying to make there. Well, and I think this is also the point of um, Cardinal Canelames's homily, is that our primary focus on rooting out the sin of the church has to start in the mirror, yeah. right? There is, there is sin in the church, and the first place that we should address it is in ourselves and in the confessional, and to recognize that the way that the church becomes holy is by me becoming holy and living a holy life in my community, in my family, in my parish, and letting that holiness, like yeast, grow and and form the rest of the body of Christ. It, it's not top-down, right? The only way that it's top-down is that through the institution of the church, through the institution of the Eucharist, we receive the graces of the sacraments, and those graces of the sacraments allow us and give us strength to pursue that holiness. But everything else comes from the holiness of our lives. Yeah, I think it's a type of clericalism to expect all of our all of our bishops, all of our popes to be saints. When, like you said, we're supposed to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, how am I not yet like Jesus? What? How much more work does Jesus have to do in my life to make me more like him? And it will, um, it will make you crazy. But let me tell you, it's the crazy saints that get remembered. I mean, just look at the canon of saints. Everybody knows who St. Francis is, but you read about his life, and he was a little out there. Right, it's he the, was a, he was a little insane. Yes, it's the crazy ones that get remembered. So go out and be a crazy saint uh, by living. <laughs> my my listeners hear this all the time. I'm just going to tell you because you know First Peter three fifteen says, "Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you, uh, but do so with gentleness and respect." You can't give an answer when there isn't a question. So go out and live a questionable life. That's the truth. Paul, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Paul's got a new piece uh, over on Where Peter Is. It's called The Church's Mission and the Allure of Neo-Christendom. I'm going to put a link to that on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. It is well worth your time as it kind of breaks that down a little bit further, uh, this idea of what it means for us to be a smaller church without the institutions and how we deal with the pressures of that change here in our modern day. Uh, you can also listen to our Patreon segment as we're going to talk about that more in depth over there. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Up in the top right-hand corner, you'll see the link that says Patreon-support the show. You can learn more about it by clicking on that link. And as always, if you want to go back and listen to this show again, maybe catch something you missed uh, maybe share it with someone else who you think would appreciate the conversation. All of our episodes are archived there at OutsideTheWalls.com. You can either scroll through one one day at a time or over in the uh, right-hand sidebar. You'll find the names of all the guests we've had before. Click on a specific guest, see all the times they've appeared, and listen again. Now we're going to turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you study Scripture in light of the doctors and fathers and the whole magisterium of the church. Learn more by going to verbum.com. Today's reading from Scripture comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the learning of the learned I will set aside. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the wisdom of the world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it was the will of God through the foolishness of the proclamation to save those who have faith. For Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks alike, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, and I've been taking to doing something a little bit different when I read Scripture. For the longest time as I read Scripture, I read it for consolation, right? And this is a fine way to read Scripture, uh, to look for those places where God makes promises to those who listen and follow after Him, and to find some consolation that in the midst of all the things that I don't understand in this world, in the midst of uh, the things that might be very difficult for me, I can find those promises of God and find hope in them. And that is a fine and good and and completely legitimate way to read Scripture. Uh, lately, though, I've been taken to doing something a little bit different. As I read Scripture, I look for how it wants to refine me. I look at it not as if I am the recipient of all of these great promises and all of these other people are the ones who the, the Bible is uh, chastising. And I look at, the, look at it to say, what is the Bible challenging me to do today? So here we have this, this beautiful passage where Christ crucified is proclaimed, and it's, uh, it's foolishness to those who are perishing but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And I can certainly see in the crucifixion the power of God, but I have to ask myself, what are the ways in which the cross of Christ is foolishness to me? Yes, I mean, if someone was to say to me that God became man and took on, lived a perfect life, took on suffering for our sake, to redeem us and make us friends with God again. That message, I would look at that and say, yes, I agree with that. But there are some scenarios where someone might say, because of the cross of Christ, X, Y, Z. And I might think that that's foolishness. You might have something that pops into your head because of this. Uh, So I have to ask, as I look at that and I call that foolishness, is it, do I say that because it is out of line with what the church has said over the centuries. Do I say that because it does not gel with the catechism of the Catholic Church or with the magisterium of the church or with the fathers and doctors? Or do I say that because it doesn't line up with what I expect from God? This is what we've been talking about this whole time. And I have to really examine my conscience to say, Am I resisting the the foolishness of God, which is wiser than the wisdom of man, or or am I discerning rightly? And it could be that we get to the other side of this whole exercise and and nothing changes in my belief. 
but I've at least challenged the belief. I've at least read scripture from a viewpoint to say, what if I've been looking at this incorrectly? What if the cross of Christ does demand something different from me? What if I am trusting in my own wisdom and my own perspective when what Christ is calling me to do is to let go of my perspective and to acknowledge him in all of my ways and not to lean on my own understanding? And so that's what I take from from this specific passage today. Where's the wise one? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the wisdom of the world foolish? And I have to really examine myself and say, am I operating in the wisdom of God? Or am I trusting in my own interpretation and have somehow ended up with the wisdom of this world? It's not a bad question to ask ourselves. Because we can only, through examination, only come out in a better place in the end. Because as we turn ourselves completely over to God and surrender those things that aren't of Him, we'll find ourselves in a closer relationship to Him, even for the asking, even for taking the time to make that examination. So I invite you to read Scripture in that same way with me. Yes, look for the consolation, look for the ways that Scripture is encouraging, but also Listen to the words of Scripture with an ear towards what is God challenging me on today? Our reading from uh, church history today comes also from a letter to the Corinthians, but this time instead of St. Paul, it's from Pope St. Clement. Beloved, Jesus Christ is our salvation. He is the high priest through whom we present our offerings and the helper who supports us in our weakness. Through him, our gaze penetrates the heights of heaven, and we see, as in a mirror, the most holy face of God. Through Christ, the eyes of our hearts are opened, and our weak and clouded understanding reaches up toward the light. Through him, the Lord God willed that we should taste eternal knowledge, for Christ is the radiance of God's glory, and is much greater than the angels, as the name God has given him is superior to theirs." So then, my brothers, let us do battle with all our might under his unerring command. Think of the men serving under our military commanders, how well disciplined they are, how readily and submissively they carry out orders. Not everyone can be a prefect, a tribune, a centurion, or a captain of fifty, but each man in his own rank executes the orders of the emperor and the officers in command. The great cannot exist without those of humble condition, nor can those of humble condition exist without the great. Always it is the harmonious working together of its various parts that ensures the well-being of the whole. Take our own body as an example. The head is helpless without the feet, and the feet can do nothing without the head. Even our least important members are useful and necessary to the whole body, and all work together for its well-being in harmonious subordination. Let us then preserve the unity of the body that we form in Christ Jesus, and let everyone give his neighbor the deference to which his particular gifts entitle him. Let the strong care for the weak, and the weak respect the strong. Let the wealthy assist the poor, 
and the poor man thanked God for giving him someone to supply his needs. The wise man should show his wisdom not by his eloquence, but by good works. The humble man should not proclaim his own humility, but leave others to do so. Nor must the man who preserves his chastity ever boast of it, but recognize that the ability to control his desires has been given him by another. Think, my brothers, of how we first came into being, of what we were at the first moment of our existence. Think of the dark tomb out of which our Creator brought us into His world, where He had His gifts prepared for us even before we were born. All of this we owe to Him, and for everything we must give Him thanks. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That reading comes from a letter to the Corinthians by Pope St. Clement. Let us then preserve the unity of the body that we form in Christ Jesus, and let everyone give his neighbor the deference to which his particular gifts entitle him. This is something I've been talking about with my, my children. We have just kind of innately built into us, maybe it's part of the self-preservation instinct, but we have this thing built into us that always looks out for our own good. That's just kind of hardwired that we look out for number one, as the phrase goes. Uh, but this is not the way of the body of Christ. This is not how it is for us. We, in fact, the script, Scripture explicitly tells us, look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so lately I've taken on that, that dad trait of saying a phrase over and over and over at every opportunity, hoping that it sinks in. Anytime that I have to correct the children, specifically when it centers around a, a selfish act, I say, make other people's lives easier. It's just a short little phrase, a little thing for them to, to hear when they're, you know, 75 years old and something pops into their head and they hear my voice coming from beyond the grave. Make other people's lives easier easier. This is kind of a, a paraphrase and a, and a distillation of these gospel principles, but this is what it means for us to preserve the unity of the body, for us to realize that we owe first our full, entire allegiance and love to God the Father with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But second unto it, the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And love, of course, is to will the good of another. And if I'm going to will their good in the same way that I will my good, then that involves caring for their material needs, feeding and clothing and making sure that they are well. And if we do this, make other people's lives easier, we live out the gospel in a profound way, empowered by the graces that God gives to us in the sacraments. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link to learn more. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.